Hey everyone, happy Monday or Sunday night whenever you're getting this. Uh, I'm finding that these old stories episodes that have a correlating function on my website are actually just easier to release the day before. Um, and so that's why they're being released on Sunday night. That being said, I needed to issue a quick correction in the last Old Stories episode, which was the first part of this series. Uh, I said that the website was rickalexander.com slash stories, but it's actually slash pages slash stories, which is super annoying. But that being said, I've linked it up in the show notes of this episode. And I would highly encourage you to go check out the reflection questions. I kind of present them during the episode but if you are somebody that likes to journal or meditate or contemplate or just like reflect on some of the deeper aspects of your life and you want to use this work in order to go deeper to find uh, to get a little closer to your own sort of purpose what you're doing here then these questions can be really beneficial so using them as again reflections meditations or journaling prompts quite honestly can be uh, really beneficial to help clear up some of the ambiguity in your own path. So again, that's linked up in the show notes of this episode. Also, of course, if you are getting anything at all from these episodes and you find them to be useful, it would mean the world to me if you would just share it with somebody else that you think might benefit from the message or could use it. We all go through these periods of feeling lost and can use a light, which is a lot of what we'll talk about today, actually. Um, And so if you could share that with people, that would just mean the world to me. And of course, if you have time to head to iTunes and give us a five-star review, that would also just be really beneficial to help my show climb the ranks and get the message out there to more and more people. Additionally, as we head into part two of Jonah, I think it's important to understand that this is not a theological reflection. It's not even a religious reflection. Actually, I'm just kind of asking the question, what is the logic that emerges in these old stories? And then how might we apply that to our life today? And so I think if you have a hard time separating the religious implications of the story, it might make it more difficult to grasp the point that I'm actually driving toward, which is really your own sort of walk and path toward purpose and toward wholeness and toward what it is that you're doing here. We have a tendency to read stories, especially ones that we've heard before, as if they're you know, they occurred at some other time in history or they occurred in some faraway land like in a fairy tale and that they don't really have anything to do with us and what we're doing here today. And I I actually am finding that that's quite the opposite. If you read them correctly, if you can pay attention to the literary devices that are used, then you actually find that they're really fruitful for understanding what it is we're doing here. And of course, that's why we have story in the first place, right? The, The emergence of story The role that it's played is the link from generation to generation so that we can remember things because quite honestly, we just don't live that long. And so if you have to trial by error every single thing that happens in your life, well, that you're setting yourself up for a really long, arduous life. But if you can learn from the logic of stories that people have passed down for millennia, then you set yourself up to at least be at least a little further ahead in the power curve when it comes to trying to figure out how to make this life your own. And I would also say that that's how we become good stewards of wisdom, right? We, we read these old stories. We try to figure out what are, the, what are our ancestors telling us about what it means to be here and how, how might that apply to us today. And so that is the point. And 
to be honest with you, the story that I'm going to do after Jonah is not biblical at all. So that might be a little bit easier for you to separate if you've already grown up with some sort of introduction to this story and already have these preconceived ideas of what it means. Uh, but I would just push you to reflect deeper and sit with these reflection questions and just see where they land for you. All right, that's enough rambling. Without further ado, let's move on to part two of Jonah. All right, so part two is a little bit interesting. Remember part one is in our story, we reached the point of surrender. And that's when uh, Jonah was thrown overboard and into the depth, you know, into the unknown, which is really what we're all trying to avoid when we don't want to surrender to our lives, which is often why we convince ourselves that we have such a, a modicum of control in the first place. You know, it makes us feel better. It makes us feel like we're in charge. I think part of the hero's journey and, and part of our journey through life is figuring out, you know, where are we? What can we control? What do we have control over? And what don't we have control over? And like really learning to relinquish what we don't have control over so that we can own our part of the story is actually really important. And a pro, and a, that's a part of the story, you know, collectively that the modern person really has trouble with because we don't want to hand anything over. We're taught to always have the answer. We're taught to always be in control. And to live in that way is really to not take heed of what it means to be human and what people have been telling us for generations of time. And of course, what happens is we act as though we have control. And then we feel we're laying in bed at night and we start to feel anxiety and we don't really know where it's coming from. Or what happens more often than not is like you, you've heard the quote or you've heard the saying probably like you make plans and then you hear God laughing. Often what happens is we convince ourselves we're in control and then reality just objects to our plans altogether and it forces us to realize, man, there are parts of this life that we really have to surrender to. And that's not to say that we have no control. That's to say that we have to become uniquely aware of where in our lives we actually do have control. So as we move to part two, just remember, you've just been thrown into the deep. And this whole verse is actually just a prayer. So it's, again, really short. This whole entire story is only four chapters. So I'm going to say the prayer, and then I'm going to move on to the commentary and talk about what it actually means. And remember, I would really push you, if you grew up with this story, sometimes it's in children Bibles, or sometimes as an adult, if you've read it, just listen to it, see where it lands, and then we'll move on to the commentary and we'll unpack it, probably in a way that, that you've not heard before. So now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. As I continue here, there's something about prayer and laments and poetry that you can listen to the underlying rhythm of them. And even independent of the message, you know, independent of the words, you can listen to where it lands for you. And so try to listen to it almost as if it is music rather than, 
you know, if I were to, if I were to read a fact sheet to you, you're constantly thinking, oh, is this something I refute? Is this something I, I agree with? Try to let that go and get the underlying rhythm of what's happening here. And I think you'll be closer to what the actual author wanted you to feel. You hurled me into the depth, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of gratitude, praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. All right, so I'm going to start with a reflection question, because right at the beginning, it says the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. So the reflection question is this, and this is a good way to ground the whole entire story, really. You know, what would it take for you to believe that this life is actually rigged in favor of your growth? Would it mean that everything had to remain safe and comfortable? Is that the assumption that you're working on? Because, you know, if it is, it's important to point out that that's not what growth is. And if I were to just leave it more vague than that and say, look, the universe is in favor of you, it might be likely that you point to all of the difficult things that you've been through. And in pointing to that, you would say, no, look, look at actually how hard all of this is. Look at actually how things are constantly not working out. And that's why I say, but what if it were rigged in favor of your growth? Not necessarily what you think you want, right? Because if you get what you want all the time, the chances of you growing are, well, they're zero. Because so many of the toughest things in life are the most important. And that is one of the, on my spoken word album, if you listen to that, it's on YouTube. There's a track called A Painful Invitation. And the idea there is that life invites us to growth, to transformation, to be more through the toughest, you know, the toughest things that we're going to go through in this life. And for most people, if you were to ask them, hey, look back on your life and tell me the things that were the most important to your journey, like the most important to, and of course, provided that that person is somewhere that they want to be, of course. So you say, look back and say, well, what are the things that really matter? Often it's when they got fired. Often it's when they got broken up with. Often it's when they had all of these plans for their life and then reality objected to those plans and they were forced to recapitulate, reconfigure on the fly. And that is really what this, you know, that's what this story is is giving us. It's like, yeah, I know you have a direction that you want to go, but perhaps this universe, this life that you're living right now is actually rigged in favor of your growth. It's a different perspective it's a different disposition toward your life. But if you took it, what it does is it reframes the things you're going through. You're going to go through them anyway, right? And that's something I think is really important to remember with all of this. Like you're not avoiding these difficult times. That's one of the things the first part of the story said. It's like, yeah, 
course you want to go somewhere else. You know, you, you have these plans, you have these models for your life and what will make you successful. But if it's all rigged for your growth, maybe there's somewhere better. Maybe, maybe you don't know what you want. And if you were to let go and if you were to transform through the really difficult things, maybe the new expansive version of you would be f- worth all of the pain that you're going to go through. So as it goes on, it says Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. So three days is a motif that emerges really throughout ancient history, throughout the Bible for sure. There's a couple of things that are happening here. So oftentimes with these ancient writers, whenever they use the word three, they're just trying to say more than a few. Or as you might think, long enough to actually be dead, right? To be as near hopeless as you can possibly be. You know, you see this in the Jesus story too, because he wasn't, you know, in the story, he wasn't dead for three days. It's Friday to Sunday morning, but then when it's recounted, it says three days. And so right there, it tells you, look, we're not talking about literalism here. We're trying to say that it was as near hopeless as it could possibly be. And so every time that there is a motif of resurrection or rebirth in the Bible, You'll see that three-day motif often. So he's in this fish, it says, for three days. There's this interesting fascination with numbers in the ancient world that emerged. And that actually is what led to Pythagorean school, which is essentially what is the foundation of modern math. So you've probably heard when you were in geometry, Pythagorean's theorem. What's interesting is Pythagoras, they don't actually know if he was a real person or not. They think it could have been a cumulative sort of, you know, person based on all of the wisdom of this school. But as the story goes, the Pythagoreans looked and they said that, you know, numbers are the actual real nature of all of the things in our universe. And so there's a real mystical element to Pythagoreans' principles, philosophies, and school of thought. Now, obviously, a lot of that got dropped. And at the bottom of that, was the real nature of things right and that's what we teach in math it's also the uh, octaves of a scale and music like they figured out all of this really interesting underlying numerology and so modern numerology which i think that again you know it's there's there's always something to it and there's always something that's not a hundred percent accurate right like it's always both and and so that's also where the school of modern numerology sort of comes from or has its roots and so there's this whole mystical element of numbers too but a lot of people throughout time figured that we could use numbers in order to say what's really going on here you know as, as Pythagoras said the real nature of thing so three as symbolism actually insinuates dynamism and spiritual connection and so look in every religion there you'll see three emerge with divinity and so Obviously, in the Christian tradition, that's the Holy Trinity. And there's the same thing, kind of not the exact same thing, but the same idea emerges in the Hindu tradition. In the Egyptian sun god, there were three aspects of Ra. Like you just see this number three. And so what it sinuates is dynamism and spiritual connections. And so what's being said here through this number is that if you want to be reborn, there's an aspect of divinity That is the only thing that makes that possible. That's why also, right, you're gone for more than a few days. It's long enough to be near hopeless. You have died completely. And so the only thing that's going to bring you back is something something more real, more ultimate, 
than you are. You know, this is an interesting thing because this is exactly what happened in my own life. Like when I went through this rock bottom moment in life where, you know, like my business was failing, I had a really tough breakup. I really had no idea what I wanted or who I was anymore. I was kind of like, you know, I was very much in the belly of the beast, so to speak. It was the recognition of a spiritual component of my life that actually led me out of the rubble. And so you might look at this like when you're depressed, right? You're in this place. You're, you're pushed down into the deep. That's what depression is. Well, this is what comes up in Jonah's prayer over and over. He's pushed down into the deep, and we'll get into what that means. But then there's this idea that what gets you out of depression, right, out of a negative state, is enthusiasm. And so if you look at the etymology of enthusiasm, what you see in there is the root word theos, which is God. And so enthusiasm is to be filled. It is to be literally inspired with divinity. And so though we've stripped a lot of our religious connotations out of the things that we talk about today, the exact same reality is unfolding under it all. And so it is enthusiasm, right, in its most literal sense that can help lead us out of that depression. And as I said in my own life, it was just a recognition that, man, there is a part of me that the world can't touch. Like it's the undying you, so to speak. You you think that you're all these identities that you've convinced yourself that you are. You think that you're, you're what your job says that you are and what your relationship says that you are and who you've convinced yourself that you are. But when you find yourself in these rock bottom moments, when you find yourself in the belly of the beast, what happens is life go, <laughs> does you a solid, I guess, and strips away everything that you're not. And so in that moment, it is the recognition of what is real that will lead you out. And so that three, there's something really powerful happening here, and it's pointing to your own divinity, right? It's pointing to the thing that is within you that is enthusiastic. And if you find that, as the logic in this story says, it's the thing that's going to get you spit out of the belly of the beast. It's the thing that's going to put you back on the right path. And then also the, the last thing I'll say about this three, because we've been on this for a bit, is the idea of the dynamism. And so what that insinuates is if you could think back, you know, at the end of this, he says, um, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. God's relational. And so when the three pops up, there's a hint of dynamism in there, right? There's the, in the Trinity, for example, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nobody really understands how that works, but it's a way of articulating that God isn't well, what most people think God is, which is a cross between Zeus and Santa Claus, right? So God's not this old man in the sky who's got this cosmic balance sheet. And if you end up on the right side of it, you'll go to the right place. Like that is a really childlike and simplistic view and actually quite contradictory to what the actual idea of God is in the first place. And so with the emergence of the Trinity, what you see is, no, there's a relational aspect in there. And that's what love is, right? Love is relationship. You can't have love if it's just one thing that's just a thing. And so there's this idea that it is this relational love that will help pull you out of this really, really dark time. And so that's relating to your own spiritual component. And that's also relating to the people that are in your life. You know, he goes on and he says, like, I called and he answered. This is something interesting because he's praying as if it's already done. And so there's an assumption that even this fish, which has eaten him, is actually for him, right? So you see this, he was in the depth and it doesn't get better. It's not like he was in the depth and then a cruise ship came along and offered him something incredible. 
like this gnarly fish ate him, right? And so then he prays as if with the assumption that this thing is for him. And so remember that first question where I said, what would it take for you to believe that this life is rigged in favor of your growth? Well, if you did, it would change the way that you thought about everything that happens to you. And that's the important thing because the reflection question that pops up here is, how would your life change if gratitude was not contingent on your comfort? Because that's something that we all have a lot of trouble with, right? We're grateful when things are good, and of course we are. But if we could take a more expansive view of things, that's what faith is, right? Faith is the idea, and I know I've said this on here, but the idea that, look, things are going to fall down around you. That's inevitable. But faith is saying, I'm not going to cling to what's falling down around me. I'm going to, I'm going to hold out hope for a bigger story. There's a bigger story that's emerging here. And I get to be part of that too. And perhaps this fish that just ate me, this thing that's not working out, well, maybe it's actually setting me up for that bigger story. And so then you have gratitude even amidst the storm. If your gratitude is contingent on your comfort, sometimes you'll have it and sometimes you won't. And over the long course, it'll be worthless because you're going to go through just as many bad things as you are good. That's, that's what wholeness would be in life, right? It's necessary to make that happen. And so adopting a perspective, again, of the things that you're going to go through, they kind of change how you feel when you're in them, right? Because again, it, he's, say, he's saying, I called and he answered. And this guy's been eaten by a fish. Like things aren't going super well. He's not drowning anymore, but he's, he's somewhere else dark, no doubt about it. And so what we see here is he, he says in his lament, he's like, I've been banished and yet I will look again. And so what's happening here is we see the emergence of hope on account of his gratitude and his surrender. Hope is a byproduct of how you're being in the world. It's generated when we choose to honestly face the trials and the tribulations that we come up against. Hope isn't, you know, a lot of times people say like, I have no hope or um, they feel as though they have no hope. It's important to remember that hope isn't actionless, right? It doesn't just fall into your lap. It is a byproduct of how you're being how you're viewing what you're going through, what you're telling yourself about what you're going through. And so a a natural reflection question pops up here, which is how are you keeping hope at a distance in your own life when you're going through difficult things? Like, are you still at the point where you're forcing stuff? Are you still at the point where you're trying to go away from your call? Remember, there was no, he didn't have hope when he was on the ship sailing away. Actually, it was getting worse. The storm was coming up and it was making things worse. So. I don't know, maybe you're running from your call, right? Maybe you're running from the the thing that's nudging you from your own depth, from your own truth. In that place, we don't have hope, right? And that's an interesting contrast that's happening here. He thinks he's getting what he wants. He's trying to go away. He's like trying to leave, but there's no hope in that place. Hope doesn't happen until he's already surrendered. He's already been consumed by both the deep and the beast. And he has gratitude in that moment And then, and only then, does hope emerge in the story. Yet I will look again. He knows it. It's not, he's not wondering about it. And that's something that's interesting too, because hope, we think of it as this sort of ambivalent force, like, well, it'd be nice. But if you live your life in the right way, if you face all of the things that you're going through in a really honest way, 
Hope is what you're given. Hope is the gift of doing that. It's not fruitless. You know, faith isn't fruitless. It, it's hopeful. And that's important to remember because, again, you're going to go through the tough times anyway. He also has all of these mentions of going downward, right? The deep depth. He says the root of the mountains. I really like that, that imagery there. Remember, the city that he's supposed to go to, Nineveh, they're drowning in their own right and in need of the truth given to Jonah. So that's what's happening in the, the whole story. Remember at the beginning, God's like, I've got this truth and you need to go tell these people because they're, they're going away from love. They're going the absolute wrong direction. And so that city is drowning in their own right. Now there's an emerging idea here in this story, and that is the thriving of culture is contingent on the actions of the forthright individual. But the individual has nothing to offer if he or she does not embark on their own journey. As in, there's a relationship that emerges here between culture and the individual. And that's one of the things that sets, I think, the biblical stories apart from other religions specifically as this idea continues to emerge, which is, you know, the actions of you matter. Like you as an individual, that has a say on how all of this goes. And I tend to migrate toward that idea too, because when you look at things culturally, it's like how hard is it to get anything culturally to change if it doesn't happen on an individual level, right? Like that's the level that things actually have to happen. And so what you see right now is in this part of the story, it is both the individual and the culture which is going downward, which is drowning. And so they have a reciprocal relationship to each other, something that comes up and I talk about quite a bit in my book, Ambitious Heroes and Heartache, but it's, it's interesting, right? It's something to really think about because oftentimes what, we ha what happens to us as individuals is we are off in this fantasy of convincing ourselves that who we are doesn't matter here. It's like, well, you know, what's little old me going to do with the big old world? And so the story that emerges here is like, well, little old you is going to face your demons. It's going to face your depth. It's going to face the things that you're the most afraid of that you do not want to do the most. But if you do so, not only will you be given hope in that moment if you do it right, but you're the one that can redeem the whole thing. And so if everybody took that stance in life, you could imagine how different our world would be right now. We're always waiting on the leader. We're like, oh, we, we need unity, so we'll wait for somebody that's going to unify us in a leadership position. It's like if we're waiting on that, we are totally casting the probability of our own redemption up to the whims of chance. But there's something we could do here. We could take on the idea that our personal struggle actually matters in the unfolding of the whole entire things. And so the emerging idea that's even bigger than everything I've said here is that we are co-creators of the world. Right? We are co-creators of the universe. That's what's happening here. The thriving of culture is contingent on the actions of the forthright individual. And right now, we don't have initiation, right? This is something that's gone away. I'm reading a lot about initiation passages right now and why they had them in so many tribal cultures and what the importance of them was. And for a, for, let's use a boy, for example, because those are a lot of what I've been reading just because of my own struggles in life. There's this idea that if a boy doesn't go through initiation and learn how to become a man, which is letting a lot of the boyish part of them die, then there's a sword hanging over the whole culture. And so what happens is in the absence of figuring out what really matters to them, 
then what's happening is that they're actually consumed by greed, hate, envy, the things that are actually bringing our culture down to its knees right now. And so there's this idea that what initiation has done historically is it's forced people into transformation. It's a forced transformational process so that they can become the kind of person that is capable of leading and redeeming culture. And so you going through your struggles now, like that is what modern society needs more than anything is for you to actually just face your struggles and allow them to transform you rather than be the person that says, no, I'm going to stay on this ship and we'll all go down together because that's what's happening. Remember, Jonah says, now you're going to have to throw me over. I'm going to have to surrender to this. We're not getting out of this alive. And what so many people are doing now is they're staying on the damn boat. They're like, no, we'll just all go down together because I'm too scared. We don't have a forced initiation. What you do really, really matters. He goes on and he says, my life was ebbing away, but then I remembered you. Now, this might sound obvious, but when you're lost and you're stumbling around in darkness and you're in need of light, what you need to do is actually move closer to its source. You need to focus on light. Plato said, we can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the dark. And I would extend that to say adults, right? Because Plato's writing in a much different time than we are now. And oftentimes men was, of course, used to talk about the whole of human race, which is why we say history instead of our story. But it's important to understand that, like, as a child, this is what you're, this is what you're sacrificing. This is what you're giving up or part of it anyway. And so we could think about this in terms of what's the imagery here and how does that play out in our own life? So as a child, when you're afraid of the dark, what do you do? You call your parents, right? You call your mom, you call your dad. And then what do they do? They come in and they turn the light on and they say, look, nothing's there. It's okay. You can go back to sleep. Now, as an adult, if you don't learn to do that for yourself, which is you have to learn to go find the light, you can't be afraid of the light. You have to get up. You've got to walk across the scary room where the monsters might be and flick the light on for yourself, right? You've got to practice patterning and teaching yourself that there's nothing actually to be a scared, to be afraid of and that light will extinguish the darkness. Because what happens if you don't is you end up succumbing to the three lie, what I call the three big lies of darkness, which is one, you want to be there. Two, you deserve to be there. And then three, you'll always be there. And so the only thing that's ever going to serve as an antidote to the darkness that you're in is light. It's the only thing historically, it's the only thing metaphorically, you must find the light. You must focus on the light. You must walk toward the light. Otherwise, you'll end up believing these lies and you'll stay in this childhood hell, only you'll be an adult, right? This is the person that's waiting for their ship to come in constantly and they don't realize that they're the captain, right? They're the one driving the ship. And so sometimes you've got to get up and you've got to do the hard thing yourself. There's a really good quote by Robert Moore who said, the energy form that seeks the fall of great men is the shadow of transformation. Because what happens is our darkness, that's the thing that's inviting us to transform, not move in and set up shop and stay there, right? If you get consumed by these three lies, you'll end up staying there. But there's a lot of destruction that's taking place in the darkness, right? This is, you are in the belly of the beast. And so that quote, by Robert Moore, the energy form that seeks the fall of great men is the shadow of transformation. You're being invited to transform. The burning off, it's meant to kill the parts of you that aren't going to serve you going forward. 
But if that fire isn't harnessed right, if the right things aren't sacrificed to that fire, what happens is it burns down your entire life. He goes on and he says that a lot of people, you know, he's talking about, I think, Nineveh, where he's supposed to go. He says, look, people are going to worship their idols. They're going to turn away from God's love for them. You know, what the transformational times in our life do, what the darkness in our life does, is it invites us to embody a more expansive version of what it means to love, right? What it means to be here. Those who don't recapitulate their idea of life, of love, they end up spiraling downward and they can end up spiraling, spiraling for a really, really long time. An example I've used before is like when you're 16 and you fall in love, the easiest thing to do in the world is to be in love. It's the first time you've ever been loved. It's not until they, I don't know, break up with you, maybe cheat on you, things go south. It's not until you actually know how bad this can all hurt and then do you learn what it actually means to love. And so every relationship that breaks you open, you are getting a more expansive version of what it means to be in love, what it means to actually be a part of this thing that we call love. You know, if you actually believe, so this is something that emerges in all traditions, really, is God created the world. In Hindu, Brahma is, the world is actually a divine dream manifestation of Brahma. So you see this idea pop up all of the time. You know, if there's a God, we've been loved into existence, right? Our whole, that's why if you act like your life is a gift and you show reverence for that gift, you'll be the recipient of that love. But everybody knows that you don't have to accept love. Like you've been in a relationship where one person loves you and you don't love them back. There's no reciprocal dynamic nature there. There's no, there's no healing capacity there. None of the things that love can also can give you that make life worth living are actually present if you don't accept it. And that's what surrender is doing is saying, I'm, I'm going to accept this love, though I don't understand how it works, right? Though I don't understand why I'm in so much pain or why I'm going through so much pain, I'm going to continue to recapitulate my idea of love in the first place. And in doing so, it's going to invite me into a more expansive existence. And that's, of course, what faith is asking you to do. In our book club that uh, Danielle and I are doing, it's interesting because we're going over man's search for meaning. And Viktor Frankl, who is in the Holocaust, he's a psychotherapist, really interesting psychotherapist who's in the Holocaust. And he is going through all of these difficult times. And this message bursts forward in his life, which is that the essential nature of life itself is love. And he is in the absolute worst times that you could fathom. In fact, if you ever read the book or read anything about the Holocaust, it's so much worse than you could fathom. We have a hard time even understanding what happened because it's so far from what we would even consider to be an acceptable form of reality. And so that's why people say, well, if there's God, where was he during the Holocaust? To which I would say, well, you should read Viktor Frankl because he found it. Like somehow, against all nature, he found her, you know? He found God and, and he found love. And we have this idea, and I think it's because of the prosperity gospel. It's this idea that, if God loves us, he's going to do, he, you know, he or she is going to do what we want, like give us what we want in life. But then you match that picture up against things like the Holocaust and you realize you're just telling yourself that. That can't be, if you accept that God loves you, that you're a child of God, then him or her making things work out for you can't be the litmus test at which that love hinges. And that's why I mean 
that it invites us to a more expansive version of what it means to love. And then the interesting thing is if we can get there, right? If we can accept that love doesn't mean things are going to work out for us, all of this being in favor of does favor of us doesn't mean we're not going to go through difficult times. It surely cannot mean that based on what we know about history. Well, then we have to embody a deeper, deeper, more expansive idea of what it means to love. And in that, our family becomes the recipient of that. Everyone that's downstream from us becomes the recipient of that. Because imagine we have this idea of quid pro quo love in our culture, right? Like, well, we'll be unified if we agree. I'll expect you out of me. And if you do that, then I'll love you. That's essentially the, the f- resonance or the vibrational love that we're all kind of walking around at these days. But could you imagine if you love somebody so completely that you didn't need anything from them? You didn't need them to change their mind. You didn't need them to act differently toward you. You didn't even need them to love you back. That Imagine what that kind of love would do for the people that are in your life that you do love now. Imagine if your love for your partner wasn't contingent on them doing anything for you, you know, being the person that you need. Now, this isn't to say you should be a doormat. It's to say that if you can embody a more expansive version of love, that's the kind of thing that changes the entire world because that, at, at its essence, is what we're doing here. All right, I've gone on far too long about love, so let's move on. We're almost out of the woods here or out of the whale. Um, He says in his prayer, he says, I will sacrifice. He says, but I will with shouts of gratitude, praise, will sacrifice to you. Sacrifice is something that we, we always want to sacrifice what we want to sacrifice, right? We, we, everybody gets it, you know, that sacrifice is something that you must do in order to get where you want to be in the world. Because Right? Only a thief would expect something for free. So we do understand transactionally that there's sacrifices that have to be made to get where we want to get. The problem is that oftentimes what we have to sacrifice, and this is the sacrifice that he's talking about right here, it's all of the lies of the false self. So in essence, what's happening here is in order to play your role in the unfolding of creation, the false self will have to be sacrificed. And so then that brings up the question of what is the false self? Well, the false self could be understood as the parts of you that cause harm or cause pain to yourself and to other people. And you really can't cause pain to other people without causing pain to yourself because your relationship to self is your relationship to the world. And so oftentimes as we're growing up and we're learning, oh, what does it mean to be here? We learn really cutthroat ways to be here. Like maybe we learn that the world is a zero-sum game, which means there must be winners and there must be losers. That's where our culture has been vibrating for a very long time. That's part of what you know, gave rise to the worldview of Donald Trump and why he was so successful, because that is the world we believe that we're in. We think that in order for us to win, somebody else has to lose. The problem is it's not sustainable. There's an African proverb that says, a child who is rejected by his village will burn it down just to feel its warmth. And that's what's happening. If the world is a zero-sum game, which means there are winners and there are losers, then those losers are going to burn down the entire game for everybody. And that's a function of archetype, right? That's not something that we're in control of. It's not something we can repress. Look, in the U.S., we have more jails. We have more people incarcerated than any other country in the entire world. Well, part of that's because of the privatized prison system. But what it goes to show you is that it does not work. The culture is still burning. 
the culture is still on fire. This idea that in order for me to win, you have to lose is absolutely not sustainable. And it's also a really low level of consciousness. You know, a, as I said, this inviting of a higher love, what it's actually doing is it's inviting you to vibrate at a higher frequency. Um, if you've ever understood how consciousness works, it, we often talk about consciousness expansion, right? you become aware of more things. So what you become aware of is actually there are ways in which I could be here and you could be here and we could both get what we wanted. The reason that the individual has to go through this transformational process is because they have to sacrifice the smallest parts of themselves. They have to sacrifice the fault self. Otherwise, there's a sword hanging over the neck of the entire culture. And so what we have right now are a whole bunch of adults who have not sacrificed the lowest parts of themselves. They're not ready to let go of their models of reality. They're not ready to let go of the fact that in order for there to be winners, there must be losers. They're not, that's how they've learned to keep themselves safe. And I've been there, right? So I don't want to point fingers here because I've definitely been the person that says, look, there's winners and there's losers and far be it from me to be a fucking loser, right? That, is, that was the way that I navigated the world in my 20s. Letting that go has been really difficult. It's also really necessary if we're going to build a world that's worth being a part of. So here in this sacrifice, you see this idea of the reciprocal relationship between culture and the individual yet again. It's all interrelated. It's all connected. Though you don't see it, you know, when you're going through your life, and this is the interesting part of the fault self. The fault self is going to live off division. Remember this, I win, you lose. Right? I'm right, you're wrong. I know, you don't. I'm smart, you're ignorant. This division is how the fault self learns to prop itself up and to exist in the world. It is what must be sacrificed if culture is going to evolve. So a natural reflection question emerges here, which is what parts of the fault self are you holding on to? I mean you now. What parts of yourself are living in division and causing harm to you or somebody else? What beliefs do you think you have to hold on to in order to be comfortable? What aren't you willing to surrender to? What aren't you willing to sacrifice? Interestingly enough, is that's the thing that's keeping you in the belly of the beast. That's the key thing that's keeping you in the darkness. See, because the false self lives on division, what it doesn't understand is a dialectic world. What it doesn't understand is paradox. You've got to let go in order to get out of the darkness. You've got to let go of the thing that you think is keeping you safe while you're there. The problem is we're all walking around in the belly of the beast convincing ourselves that our methods are working. What the story tells us is, Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is a truth of our cosmic reality. The patterns that have emerged of what it means to be human here have told us, and this happens in the hero's journey too. There's a part in the hero's journey, every movie, every story you've seen that has this as its underlying truth, there's a part where the hero has to let go of what he's holding on to or he'll never get the gifts that are actually meant for him. Man, that, if you could just understand that truth, then you'd open yourself up to actually receive what is meant for you. And of course, remember, this is what the whole journey is too. The reason that it's an act of love, that the ship doesn't work out going in the wrong direction, is because there's a more expansive reality that is meant for you. But you'll never get there through the fault self. You're going to have to sacrifice parts of yourself that have kept you safe for years. What gets you, got you here will not get you there. And so when you find yourself in the belly of the beast, a reflection question certainly worth asking is, 
What parts of the false self are you holding on to? Then the whale spits you up. Then you can get back on your journey as a transformed person, a person rooted in gratitude for who they are and what they're doing, a person who knows their purpose, a person who's wielding truth and coming to culture with what's going to eventually redeem them and save them. Um, that We'll get more into that as we move into part three. One thing I wanted to note here throughout the whole journey, this is just something for you, right? As you're going through transformation, you're in the darkness. We're in this sort of cynicism as the darkness is consuming us. And so you're like, okay, well then how do I get to gratitude when I'm being consumed in darkness? Well, one of the ways is that you can notice synchronicities in your life. Carl Jung, analytical psychologist, used to talk about synchronicities and just the idea that if you really pay attention, you'll notice these aspects of your life that are letting you know that even though you're in hell, you're in the right place right? you're moving in the right path. You'll notice a book will get recommended to you like two or three times in the same day or the same week. Uh, I'm going through a pretty difficult transition of my own right now, letting go of these like boyish tendencies and the things that um, the ways I've learned to be here. Like I'm like really trying to sacrifice those things in order to serve a higher truth. And I'm so fascinated by the music that pops up on my Spotify, even the books I'm reading. I'm reading these books about initiation. I just happen to get interested in it. And I just happen to find these different chapters that are teaching me how to go through it. So that's something really worth holding on to and noticing because if you open yourself to it you'll start to notice these synchronicities and in the absence of anything else telling you that you're going in the right direction because culture remember culture's drowning right alongside you so they're not going to be the ones that say like oh yeah yep continue to sacrifice to continue to do the hard things they're going to be like no go back to the person right date the safe person take the safe job what are you doing take the benefits that's what that's the advice culture is going to give you and so you've got to have some way of navigating that mess without, you know, for a time, culture, of course, will be really beneficial of, for you having gone through all this journey, but they're not necessarily going to help you along. Mentors will come, people will come that point you in the right direction, but noticing the things that emerge in your life and what they're trying to tell you is something that can be really beneficial as you're going through this journey. So I'm going to stop it there. Again, if you go to rickalexander.com slash pages slash stories, which I will link up in the show notes of this episode, you can find the reflection questions. You can find this episode for further listening. And if you want to throughout the week, use these journal prompts, use these meditations. I think what you'll find is that it leads you to a much deeper version of the life and truth that you're living out. Anyway, I love you guys. Have an amazing day. We'll talk tomorrow on Morning Coffee.